You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Joining us today is Dr. Ajeta Robinson. Dr. Robinson is known as the experts therapist. She's a grief and trauma therapist, best-selling author, international speaker, and income strategist. She has been seen in places such as the Wall Street Journal, Huff Post, Washington Post, Business Insider, Bustle, and Therapy for Black Girls. There's a lot of information here. She's done a lot of things. Um, she is a licensed professional counselor, trauma and grief expert, first-generation trauma and poverty disruptor. She is the founder and executive director of Friends in Transition Counseling Services, a trauma-centered mental health practice located in Bethesda, Maryland. She is also the CEO of Legacy Wellness Group, a conglomerate of enterprises dedicated to promoting generational wealth, education, and healing. After serving as a grief and trauma expert for over a decade, Dr. Ajeta Robinson began to leverage her years of clinical experience and her previous career as a corporate consultant to launch a mental health practice and scale it to seven figures. She is a first-generation trauma and poverty disruptor who helps mental health entrepreneurs create living legacies and financial freedom while helping communities heal. So if you're listening today, you are in for a treat, and I have no doubt that you are probably on board and really excited about some of the things that you just heard us talk about. So welcome wow. and thank you for joining us. That's uh, that's a that's a lot. Would it be fair to call you a, gur- a guru? I mean, I, I feel like you're you're like the expert here. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> I appreciate you coming. Thanks for but having please me. go ahead. Yeah, I'm excited to to just spend this time and and share whatever knowledge I can to help. Um, your listeners and your audience and the community in general. So thanks for having me. Yeah. I will just say that as a lawyer um, who works with mental health practices, um, insurance is is a big deal. So, you know, having you on is is really exciting. And, and I think Melissa and I are really interested in hearing what you have to say, because obviously insurance and what you do with insurance and how you do it. And, you know, just as a mental health practice, it that really impacts people's ability um, to get clients and how they run their practice and making sure you're doing it right. So this is a topic that's huge in the mental health world. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you have a lot of experience in, in several different areas. Um, I do know that insurance is one area that you're particularly really well known for. So we've got a lot of questions. Um, they're kind of all over the place, but they all relate back to insurance um, and all of your experience in that area. But as we're getting started, one of the things I was hoping that you could talk with us about is just kind of how you landed um, doing your work with insurance. That's often a big debate for mental health providers. Do I take insurance? Do I not take insurance? And a lot of times there are very strong feelings on both sides about why people make their decision. Um, And you've clearly, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to say made a decision for yourself, but you've landed in one arena of taking insurance and helping other mental health providers and their practices work with insurance companies and take insurance. So I'm wondering if you can talk with us a little bit about that journey and how you ended up there. Absolutely. So I am and I am a pro-insurance provider and not because of the insurance companies, but because of the access that it creates. And for me, that's a big part of who I am as a person um, and who I am as a, a leader, right? And so it is right there in, um, I think, what I was called to do, being a disruptor. So I, my practice is located in one of the most affluent cities and counties in the country. And so we don't have to take insurance. And we actually started off as a cash pay only practice. I was actually not fully licensed when I launched my practice here in Bethesda, mm-hmm. Maryland. Um, I was fully licensed in Missouri, but Maryland did not take my full license from Missouri. So I kind of had to do the LG all over again, which was a bummer. And so I started off as cash pay. I recognize that the folks who were able to access the um, therapy services were those who had a significant amount of disposable income. And I started my career working with urban African-American youth. They would never be able to pay 
um, or afford services at the frequency that would really generate the healing long-term, right? Because of their cumulative trauma histories, um, I would not have been able to access services when I was a, you know, a younger person needing the support. And so that has always been a part of my commitment. My practice is now 40% insurance, 60% um, 60 insurance, 40% private pay. So even though I accept insurance, there are some insurances that are not a good fit for my business. I think what I would want therapists to, um, to be able to do is to move away from this kind of all or nothing because you can do yes. both, right? Yes. But it doesn't have to be a decision that is riddled in shame or blame or fear or scarcity. And so for me, whether you accept insurance or not, I want you to master that process. And that's how mastering insurance came to be was because I saw a ton of folks being shamed for not accepting insurance and then folks accepting insurance, feeling frustrated and not and feeling just completely at the will of the insurance company. I'm like, wait a minute, you have some autonomy and some agency here if you understand how to navigate the systems that we've chosen to interact with, right? Or not, but to do it in a way that I think causes the least amount of harm and honors why we signed up to do this work. Because I do not think that we have to choose between serving the most vulnerable and those who may never be able to afford our full fee and financial wealth and stability. I think they have to go hand in hand with, uh, with one another. Um, and that's kind of how I serve and how I support clinicians wanting to build their practices. Do you remember way, way back when Tom Cruise was on Oprah and he was jumping on the couch? You remember that? Does anyone remember that? Right. That's how I feel right now with the couch behind me. Because your answer, that answer is so great. And this comes up all the time where I'm talking to practitioners and they're pulling their hair out with a certain insurance company, you know, any pick one. Um, and they're just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I can't make money with them. And I'm always like, well, then don't work with them. Right. And they're like, I can do that. And it's such a moment of realization. You're like, yeah, it's your practice. You can decide who you want to work with and not work with. And there are going to be other clients out there that you can, can get, you know. Um, so I just love, love, love that you said that. Well, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit more to that line that sometimes providers feel like they have to choose between taking insurance and serving people who need to use their insurance in order to access service and also being able to be profitable and make money. I hear you saying that those two things don't have to be competing. Yes. Um, so I think that it's first important to, I, to adopt what I call CEO habits, right? And so I think our training as therapists, um, everyone that I've ever spoken to who's a therapist, I ask them um, if they've ever heard this particular line, that we don't enter this field to make money. And we often equate that with there isn't money to be made in this field or that we shouldn't make money in this field. Yes. And so we approach our entrepreneurial journey often out of default or because we, we can't exist in the spaces, you know, we feel devalued. And so that lands us in private practice. But because we have not adopted an identity as an entrepreneur who happens to be a therapist, we make decisions that are heart centered, right, that may not actually allow the business to sustain itself. And so I ask for therapists to kind of identify what, what's your why, right? What's the thing that's calling you to even enter into private practice, right? And most of the time, it's almost exclusively about, I just want to do good work with the clients that I feel most connected to. Great. In order to do that work and, and, and feel good about doing that work and not be burnt out, what do you need to earn? What does the revenue need to look like so that your family is whole, Right. How many, most of my therapy friends and colleagues have multiple jobs. And a big part of this is because we are unable to reconcile charging something that allows us to have stability and sustainability, mm -hmm. right? And if we're able to do that, we can attract clients who it isn't a burden for them to pay that full fee. It actually creates room for us to then work with clients who would never be able to serve us, right? That would never be able to pay our actual fee because it balances out. And so every my team has a, at least one pro bono client. Most of my clinicians have no idea who that client is because it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't impact whether or not they're paid because they're paid regardless of who they see because the practice can afford, we have room and profitability to take clients regardless of their capacity to pay. But I had to know what our numbers needed to be to be able to afford that particular gap, right? And so for me, it really is 
that is the CEO habits, right? Of being able to identify what the business needs are and how does that align with the deliverables? That's the mission of the business. We do really well at identifying the mission. We don't do such a great job of identifying the revenue that allows the mission to live out, right? And so Mm -hmm. I've asked for a therapist to partner with someone that is perhaps a data guru, right? That can help them with the financial aspects of the business so they can just stay in their zone of genius and do the thing that makes their heart happy, right? Which the two can happen, right? And it doesn't mean you have to wear both hats. That's that's a really um, profound point to make. Um, that comes up a lot for me when I'm talking to the clients is that there are, essentially what you're saying is there really are two hats that you're wearing, right? You are a CEO and you have a duty to the business and you have a duty as that CEO to look at the bottom line and figure out how do you make the business profitable? How do you keep it running? But then there's that other side, which is the training. You know, people go through training to become therapists. They believe my job is to help people and they want to do that. Um, and I think that is such, yeah, that's right on. I'm right with you. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that comes up a lot for me, um, a lot, is problems with insurance, right? And, and, and I even talk to people who don't have problems with insurance and that's, the monster hiding in the closet, right? The one, the thing that they're afraid of, and they'll tell me this is, you know, okay, well, what if I get audited? What if, what if this happens? What if that happens? You know, and there's this, this, this underlying fear that, was, that comes hand in hand with a lot of practitioners with taking insurance or, or when, they, when they have insurance. So, you know, obviously when it comes to audits and compliance um, and the possibility of having to return in money to insurance companies if something goes wrong, you know, those, those are the fears that kind of are, are circulating here, you know, around this, this conversation. So I'm wondering what kind of input um, you have for clinicians um, who are concerned about these topics, concerned about, you know, what about the, the, the side of insurance where if I get into trouble, how, how can they handle these, stums, these things if they're going to be accepting insurance? What should they be focusing on? What should, how can they do this? Well, I always encourage clinicians to um, engage the way that you would help a client solve a problem, right? And so if a client is kind of catastrophizing something, mm-hmm. we first kind of test the reality of that occurring because sometimes it's not grounded in anything other than our fear, right? right? And so not in a way that minimizes the fact that audits happen, but what's the likelihood that you're going to be audited? Mm-hmm. The longer you're in practice, the likelihood that you're audited happens. The other piece is, and this blows a lot of clinicians' mind, is that not taking insurance doesn't mean that you not aren't eligible to be audited. Correct. One that they're like, say, what now? And I'm like, yeah. If the insurance company is reimbursing your client, that opens your records up to be audited. The thing that you're not open up for, opened up to, if you're not accepting payment from the insurance company, is recoupment. And so the thing that I, I encourage clinicians to do is to stack the deck in their favor. And what I mean by that is, is break down what an audit actually is. It is a verification process to confirm that the money that was paid for a service rendered was provided by an eligible healthcare provider and that the service was necessary. We are trained to document, right? And so, but if we understand what the insurance company is looking for in an audit, then we can just back it up and give them what they want to begin with and use it as a point of advocating for our clients. And so, I always treat it as a little bit of a game. Like, yeah, I know that you may audit me and I'm always going to win. How do I win, right? And it really is about being able to document in a way that tells the insurance company what happened as succinctly as possible while advocating for client confidentiality, right? And so once you understand there there are some similarities, whether you are in network with Medicare or Medicaid or commercial plans, right? Look at what the highest standard is and go after that. And then you don't have to worry about falling short on the other ones. And so I, again, stack the deck in your favor. We treat audits like it's this thing that we can't do anything about. We can, once we understand what the rules are, then you can identify ways to advocate and push against the rules, but at minimum to give them the bare minimum so that they they have no case, right? They have no um no way of really attacking what you're what you are doing. I think audit the term auditing and the process of being auditing audited is emotional for us. Who are they to come in and say what I'm doing with my client? Like they're not in the room. That's what I hear clinicians say all the time, but they're personalizing the auditing experience. 
it's a checks and balance. And so if we can depersonalize it, we can stack the deck in our favor every single time. Can I just get a hallelujah? Can we just be like, <laughs> that's like, that, I, yeah. I mean, Wes and I are both laughing because we do talk about this on the podcast and exactly what you said, you know, we talk about sometimes too, which is, you know, about contacting insurance companies, find out what is your audit protocols? What are you looking for when you do an audit? Um, so that I can then be mindful when we're, you know, noting our files for, for these. And so, yeah, just, yes, that's, yes to everything you just said, a hundred percent. The cool thing is that they're required to be transparent about it. And so if you Google United Healthcare Maryland audit, they usually have a checklist on their, their mm-hmm. site right. you can look at. And in the beginning, when you're starting out, that can be intimidating um, to kind of look through and filter through because some of the language just doesn't apply to us. But once you understand that, then you just have to look out for the update, right? And so that's part of the reason we started training clinicians and their admin team for what to look at, right? And what are the highest level of standards that we know across the board? Again, if you meet those, then you likely are prepared for an audit, right? And so we talk about how to audit proof your practice because you actually can do that in a way that, again, stacks the deck in your favor. Um, I think the other kind of important piece here is that oftentimes clinicians are the low-hanging fruit from an insurance perspective because we don't usually fight back, right? And mm. so if you are, uh, if an insurance company, you know, requests records or says, hey, you owe me this money, the burden of proof is on them. And oftentimes as insurance, as, as clinicians, we're just intimidated by the request. So we comply. We don't even ask for an appeal right. or an investigation or additional documentation. And one of the, the most common reasons or ways that I see clinicians being really taken advantage of because they, they don't know what they don't know is when the patient's insurance expired and the insurance company comes back to the clinician and says, hey, we paid you and we should not have. Well, I always recommend that you ask yourself and the insurance company who breached the contract. Because as a clinician, I relied on the information from the insurance company and mm-hmm. fulfilled the service in accordance with our contract. The breach actually occurred between the insurance company and the patient. But guess who's more likely to repay money? We are. And so they asked us first because we don't know that we can push back and say, we actually fulfilled the terms of our contract. You actually need to go and recoup from the employer or from the client directly because they're harder to collect money from than we are. And so those are things that, again, are important to stack the deck in your favor. You can have a script that says, hey, we're appealing this recruitment. It at least buys you 60 to 90 days, right? Yeah. Before, and, and then maybe you can help, you know, advocate for your client or their employer or what have you, or just get your commissioner involved if it's a commercial insurance plan. Mm-hmm. And so these are the things that I um, like to help clinicians become aware of because there's a lot of things that we don't just have to take, right? We don't just have to accept. So it, it, that's really when you're talking about is empowerment and knowing or learning how to, to fight back. And I think what you just emphasized is that most practitioners, when they get into owning their own practice, in addition to not knowing how to run a, a business, you know, and that's something you have to learn, um, mm-hmm. also don't know how to fight for themselves. Yes. Right. And so it is, as you said, it is intimidating when, you know, a large multinational or multi um, state insurance company with billions of dollars comes to you and says, we want our money. People are like, oh my God. <laughs> yes. Or the cost of the administrative time it requires to, to fight back is yeah. sometimes we're weighing it like, okay, they're asking for a hundred dollars. How many admin hours would that cost me? And we decide that it's not worth it to pursue. And, you know, we fight back on principle. <laughs> and so part of me is like, there's no way you're going to take money that I earned or, you know, mm-hmm. that, we didn't breach the contract. And so I always kind of, you know, again, when you know how to respond and when you have policies and templates in place, it becomes a process of plugging in the facts into a, a pre-existing template. So you're not recreating the wheel. Um, I think the other piece regarding um, where clinicians I see are often kind of taken advantage of and they, they don't realize it is in this recruitment request, if it happens, that the recruitment request may be allowed based on your contract, but it may be outside of the statute of limitations for your state. Now, I didn't finish law school, so I'll I'll defer to you on this one, Dan, right? But your state 
you can't just do, you can put anything you want in a contract. It doesn't mean that it can be upheld by your state laws, right? right? And so oftentimes these contracts are being sent out from these regional centers and they are applicable in the state where the organization is registered, but they're still operating and required to comply to the laws in your state. So sometimes you're getting a recoupment request that isn't even valid because your state says you actually only have two years to do a callback, right? And so if you know that, then your response is simple. Hey, you're outside of your statute of limitations. It goes away, right? But if you don't know, you pay it back. You know, and this is, this is one of the points where, you know, when, and sometimes practitioners come to me too late, right? Where this, this, that, this point has already passed. Now we're at like farther on down the line and now they're seeking out legal counsel. And, you know, I think you emphasize a really important point is that at any point that a practitioner feels where it's unfair or something's happening to them, that's legal, legal process, you know, something like this with an audit, you should be consulting with an attorney. You should be getting a legal counsel because that attorney is going to be able to tell you whether is your state law being violated? Is this applicable? What rights do you have? Um, and if you don't know as a, as a practitioner, then, you know, Melissa and I talk about this a lot, then go talk to someone who does. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And this is really good information. And, um, you know, particularly I'm thinking about that fight and how that you're talking about and how clinicians can sometimes be really timid uh, in their responses, you know, because it's a scary situation uh, and not always advocating for themselves. And I'm wondering for you, how did you how did you develop that for yourself that um, I'm going to take charge. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to be intimidated. Um, like, how did you come to that place for yourself or even learning about some of those things that you're talking about, like the statutes of limitations? How did that happen for you? Um, I think a few things. So I, I'm aware that um, I have a business background that certainly works in my favor. Um, and I did do a year and a half of law school. I didn't finish right before I finished my PhD program. So some of that kind of understanding the contract, I think that gave me an advantage, but I'm also a person that reads the provider manual. And I find that a lot of clinicians, we don't have time. They bury us in paperwork and it's intimidating, but reading the provider manual, I often, you know, require people to live out their, their, their vision statements, right. And live and uphold their policies and their procedures in a way that often is in my favor. Right. And so, you know, I do this with customer service. Uh, people all the time. It's like, hey, I think we have a, an interest here in providing quality patient care. And this particular policy infringes upon that. How can we work together to remove this barrier? And that like that is that piece. I'm also a Virgo, which people tell me <laughs> like there's no, you know, it either works or it has to work. That Those are the only options, you know, I gave myself in private practice. It has to be successful or it has to be successful. If you adopt that mindset, then you will always look for the alternative path, right? And rarely do I accept no on the first time it's issued. There has to be a way that this can work as long as it aligns with a principle that's in the best interest of serving the community, right. um, being a ethical and legal practice. There are often alternatives or options, right? I often find that um, we don't challenge or request revisions to contracts, whether mm-hmm. it's an insurance company or we're doing a speaking engagement with the school we just accept it as is. And I think this is a part of our training as clinicians. Yeah. That is another reason that we have to adopt CEO habits because that's a heart-centered decision when we often need to make data and business-related decisions. And so I think some of that is going to require um, us to mature in our identity as entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and to that it does not conflict with a survey. And so for me, that I think in our field, we talk about that as being mindset work. Um, and, and oftentimes it means that when we connect with entrepreneurs who are not in therapy spaces, we are forced to operate in a different space because people who aren't in these service-based industries, they don't have these same challenges with respect nope. to charging, right, for, for services or billing clients um, or, or having operating agreements, right? Because it's standard right. in their field. It's a part of our training that I think we actually have to unlearn, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think some of those things um, I have felt felt very grateful and thankful for the experience mm-hmm. of corporate America in particular, um, not all of the experience, but as it prepared me to run a practice and to, to be an entrepreneur, um, because it does require a different mindset and skill set in many ways that we do not receive in our training at all. And I think you just emphasized something really important, right? 
And, and I've talked to other business people who are not in the mental health world or the healthcare world at all, who you know run businesses and companies and things. And there is an absolute understanding that no, I'm here to make money, right? and I'll do whatever I need to do to make money. And I will, you know, whatever it's going to take is what I'm going to do. And there is absolutely an understanding they have that, to your point, that practitioners sometimes either forget about or don't realize, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that CEO mindset you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, and I can hear that in the in the way that you speak in your language, right? Like business, right? And I think sometimes mm-hmm. even. Um, you know, in the mental health field, even to think about a practice as a business, there's a feeling to that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think it's scary for a lot of us. I think some of us um, feel like it will compromise the work that we're able to do because we we have been in spaces where it felt very much profit driven only mm-hmm. to the right. collective patient care. And that is what led us into private practice. And so we absolutely commit to not being that, but we err way too far on the other side um, when we really need to be somewhere in the middle where we can balance the, the business's needs with the client need. And again, they don't have to be in conflict, right? We want to be intentional about the work that we're doing and who we're doing that work with. And mm-hmm. what are we exchanging for our time, knowledge, and skills? We have a wealth of knowledge and skills and training and the mental health industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Who benefits from us, the most yeah. highly skilled and trained folks, believing that we shouldn't make a solid living? I think the other piece that's a wake-up call for many clinicians is, is we have such a heart to serve, but we serve no one if we can't even, we can't be present because we're worried about whether our, our water's on at home or if we can even go to therapy because we you know, we can't afford insurance for ourselves because but there's a, a, a gap between our time, our energy, our effort, and our, our revenue and profit. Um, and so, again, I think that unpacking some of these marketing gimmicks, I call them, right, that mm-hmm. talks about charging your worth. Well, that never feels good when we're in a, a space where we know we're serving people who may not actually be able to pay our fee and we still want to feel good about working with them, right? Mm-hmm. It's that I'm a king's kid. You can't actually pay me what I'm worth, but there is something that I'm willing to exchange, right? Mm-hmm. For time, knowledge, and skills and the, the time that we're going to have together. And so again, I think that's another transition or pivot that we, we just have to make from a mindset and a business perspective um, that we have to often be business owners who happen to be therapists, right? Um, and allow that to drive. Knowing that our passion and our um, values we don't have to override them. We just have to identify how do we we continue to serve long term, and that requires a sustainable, viable business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, a few months ago, someone actually sent me one of your videos, and they said, "Hey, Melissa, I think you're going to find the answer to your billing question in this video." And it was one of your videos, and there was a line that you said in that video that really jumped out at me. And you said, "You guys know me. I'm not a fear mongerer." And that line really jumped out at me because, you know, as we were talking about just a little bit ago, there's a lot of fear for people when they think about accepting insurance and audits. Will someone ask for their money back? Am I doing the right thing? All of this stuff. And so I'm wondering, what is it for you? This might relate to some of the things you talked about earlier, but what is it about, you know, insurance for you or that you're doing that you're like, I'm not afraid. And I'm not one about trying to make other people afraid about this either. And so that really jumped out at me. And I'm curious since there is so much um, fear around it. Mm -hmm. She went to law school. I mean, that's clearly like, you know, (laughs) and business, business school. And (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that was important was when I decided that I was going to accept um, insurance is that I started by identifying who my ideal clients were. Um, my office is within walking distance of Walter Reed, and I specialize in trauma. It made sense that I wanted to be a network with TRICARE. I work with trauma, right, and PTSD and veterans, right? Um, I'm in walking distance of a trauma-level hospital. Again, I needed to identify the folks that already had proximity that were in my zone of genius. Who were they likely to have as their insurance provider? So again, I use data to determine how I could attract people who would come before work or on their lunch break, or that could walk to my office that was in the niche that I wanted to work with. And so I checked the local hospital's website to see, huh, okay, they accept Blue Cross, or they are offering Blue Cross Blue Shield. 
and I knew TRICARE. So those were the two that I started with because they aligned with who and how I wanted to serve. And then I checked the reimbursement rates. They happened to be, Blue Cross Blue Shield happens to be one of the largest payers in my state. Um, they also happen to be one of the higher payers. And so that worked out in my favor. For a while, that was the case with TRICARE until they had some administrative changes. And so for me, it's been about doing what's in the best interest of my business and those that I was that I, I feel very called to serve. Um, and then identifying are those panels and those their policies in alignment with, again, the viability of my business. And so we were in network with four insurance companies. We've gone down to two because that changed. And so the business needs change. What we realized was that we actually didn't have to be in network with TRICARE. We had built a reputation in the community that we're certified out of network, right? And those members will still come because it's what we're known for. Um, and so it meant that we changed our marketing. What, what does it ultimately mean about how you accept insurance? Is the fear piece starts off when we think that we can't build a practice without it. I think that's number one, right? Um, and then two, understanding how do we navigate the relationship, right? With the insurance company, because it is a relationship. It has to work for you. And you also need to understand what is expected of you if you're going to honor your contract, right? And so being able to meet with my provider reps and reading the provider manual, attending their webinars, if you can speak the language, you are more likely to be able to resolve conflicts or, or misunderstandings, right? You're able to be more proactive. And so we built in some preventative and proactive measures where we self-audit every single month. And so the likelihood that, that we're going to be audited and it's not something we've already reviewed is now minimized because we're proactive in that process, right? Um, and so we have internal standards and internal compliance policies um, that all of our clinical members have to adhere to. And so being able to build that, um, those processes in-house prepares us that, you know, for our books to be audited, right? There's likely, we're very rarely caught off guard by something. And if it is, it's usually single incident. So if they're looking at a, a date range, because we are proactive in the process, it may be a particular day as opposed to that entire range that may be out of compliance. And when you're able to identify or demonstrate that, you're more likely to be given the opportunity to correct that single incident um, than if you if were, it were a pattern of behavior. And mm -hmm. so understanding these types of things allows us to feel empowered. It also um, changes the way that I train my team to say, this is the way that we advocate for clients and client care on the front end so that if we are faced with the audit on the back end, we can justify what we did and why, right? So that it puts it back in our corner. Um, if I have to adjust why I gave a client an adjustment disorder, you had better believe I have the documentation and standardized assessments to, to support it. And I referenced code maybe from their provider manual, right? Um, and so again, that's that just aligns with stacking the deck in our, in our favor. If you know what the risk is, you know how to mitigate it. And what you're really talking about is the three words that I always quote to practitioners, which is document, document, document. Yeah. <laughs> All day long. And it doesn't have to take you forever, right? Our notes are very succinct. Oftentimes, I'm doing notes um, in tandem, right? So I'm in session and I'm able to do notes in tandem with clients. Once you have this iterative process down, it becomes second nature, but it does require some practice and some unlearning, right? Um, when I first started in private practice, I had come from a hospital setting where we document verbatim almost, right? right. And the settings very different, very different than the way that we needed to document in private practice, right? Um, I didn't have a compliance officer, so I became compliance, right? Um, at the time, and so it meant I needed to come up to speed with what they, they're looking for, um, and then I could meet that standard in a way that um, didn't feel too uh, kind of a medical, right? Because I think we still view ourselves slightly separately from that, although we're operating under those same standards, right? And so for me, that's the way that I maintain my autonomy while audit proofing my practice. So this is a leads kind of naturally to my next question, which does you know deal with compliance in, in its own way. And you know, and that's the the topic about billing. Um, you know, a lot of times we hear, and and, and I agree with this generally, um, you know, that it's a good idea for practitioners to be hiring a billing company, right? Because obviously that's a one area that practitioners can really, you know, make mistakes. But one of the things that you do offer is a training program 
um, to help practices do their billing in-house. And so the idea of moving back from using a billing company to going back to doing billing in-house, that can be a really scary transition, you know, I would imagine for a lot of people, particularly if that's something, you know, something happened that led them to go to the billing company to begin with. Um, so I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts on, you know, people who might be afraid, you know, to do this and how do practitioners get over that fear and start kind of being empowered to take this on again themselves? Yeah, so I um, I actually am not, I think as a practice grows um, mm-hmm. and you have more clinicians at some point, it becomes cost efficient for you to bring the billing practices back in house. Um, I think that in the beginning, it makes perfect sense to outsource billing because it's not our zone of genius, right? And it's mm-hmm. where we're probably um, vulnerable. But here's what happens. And this is the thing that I actually caution against. Whether you are bringing someone in house or you're outsourcing your billing, clinicians you're ultimately responsible for what happens in your business. And so what I teach clinicians to do um, and or their admin, whomever is managing this process, again, internally or externally, is that we have to know enough to oversee what's happening. Because if you're a biller, and this is what I often, what often leads clinicians to bring billing back in-house is that they have no visibility to what the biller is doing. And yet they're, they're liable for what the biller is doing. They are completely blind with respect to the frequency at which claims are being submitted, the accuracy of those claims, and sometimes the billing company is the one who's receiving their funds and then funneling it to the clinician. So they're completely out of the loop in a way that becomes inefficient and that has more liability because we don't even know what we're looking at. So we can't even go back and and have um, checks and balances, right? It's the reason that if you have someone who has check writing power, there's usually someone who also has to approve over a certain limit. So it reduces the incidence of fraud, right? The same thing is the case if you have an admin or a biller is oftentimes we don't understand the differences between things like denied claims versus rejected claims, right? But there are two completely different things that require different processes, right, to resolve them. And if we're just outsourcing it and then we have tunnel vision, we don't even know what the problem is or how to correct it. So that leads us to being taken advantage of, right? Because we don't know enough to at least understand that what the biller is doing is probably putting us at risk or that the billing life cycle is impacting our accounts receivables. So clinicians talk about not being able to make payroll and not understanding what's delaying those processes. Well, I ask them, what's your average clean, clean, clean claim submissions rate? And they don't know. And again, that's not to criticize, but it's the reason that I at least want you to have the language down so that when there were, the biller is responding to you or when you're hiring a biller, you know what questions to ask to identify who's actually a good fit for your business. And so this, again, is about advocacy and empowerment. So we're not kind of left in the dark. And if a recoupment comes, you saying, well, my biller did that is not an adequate not excuse. You're no. going to be liable for whatever payment is due, right? Um, And so I just want clinicians to be able to master that process so that if you're outsourcing your billing, it's not a fear-based decision. You're outsourcing it because it doesn't make sense to be in-house, right? It doesn't make sense with the organization's mission or objectives, but not because I don't know what this is and I want to put on blinders, right? I think that puts us in in a bad position eventually. And also, I would think sort of stacks the deck already from the get-go in some cases for clinicians, right? Because to your point, if you don't know what the um, biller is doing or not doing until you get paid, let's say, right? And you're just thinking they're submitting everything. You don't know when a mistake's been made until the insurance company comes along and says, oh, by the way, there's a mistake or an error and we want to investigate further. And you're like, what do you mean? I don't understand. Where did that go wrong? And you never saw it coming because as you said, you're not handling it in-house and you don't have control over that part of the process. Absolutely. And even if we outsource, and I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with outsourcing it, we still need visibility, right? And so whose system are those claims being filed in? Ideally, you give your biller access to your system so you don't lose visibility to the full life cycle. It also means that if it's completely outsourced in another system, you've just added manual tasks to your business life cycle where it could have been automated, right? So these are just other things that eventually affect your pro, your profitability because manual tasks 
requires that someone does it. It costs something, right? When If it could be automated um, and streamlined, that's really what is key uh, that you'll notice that sustainable, successful, profitable practices have in place is good workflows, right? And automation so that we can actually focus on the relationship, right? And so I think those are just key things to be thinking about. Yeah, so a few things that I hear you saying is one, that automation, right? Like making things easier, also being informed rather, you know, whether you're doing it in-house or you're not, just being informed and having that information. And I also hear you saying that there may be a point where it makes more financial sense to bring your billing back in-house. And I'm wondering if you can say anything about that. Yeah, so um, we have, I often see clinicians bring billing back in-house um, if they're paying a percentage of their claims, which is, is the, which is common, right? You're paying somewhere between 6 and 10% of the claim. Um, at, at some point, um, and usually for, for many practices, this may happen sooner if you're 100% kind of cash pay, um, I don't know why you outsource billing, but some folks do because of the volume, right? Um, but at some point, usually around six to eight clinicians, that percentage that the biller is um, being paid would pay for someone, an admin person, 40 hours a week, right? And so we want to know what the, that number is because at some point you begin to look at that and say, hey, I can have a dedicated person that's only working my account, right? That, um, again, will change your client onboarding, will change the flow of things, because oftentimes there's a process, again, manual, where we have to notify the biller to submit claims for clients because they're not using our systems. And so it takes away that process and you have visibility because everything is happening in your system. Um, It may, again, be more cost efficient usually somewhere around $40,000. And so when you hit the revenue mark of around 400,000, if you're paying 10%, you've now paid for someone that you could have dedicated only to your business, right? I also see this happen when um, clinicians are not the communication between the biller and the clinician because they're not the only client. There's a delay that clinicians begin looking at bringing that in-house because they want to have more um, a more kind of cohesive and connected relationship with the person that's managing that, right? Um, especially as you scale, um, you could have 10 clinicians, but your billing costs become fixed at that point because what you pay that person is what you pay them, regardless if they're processing $400,000 or $600,000, where you pay more if you were still outsourcing that. And so really it, it becomes a function of, of the percentage that billing is costing you relative to revenue. And there's also something to be said, and again, this is not to say that billing companies, as you said, don't have their use and, and aren't good, but there is something that you, you emphasized um, that I think is important to also call out. And that is that you, by bringing someone in house, you have someone who's invested in your practice, mm-hmm. right? When you have a biller who's billing for 20 other companies, you're just one of those 20 count companies, right? And again, I'm not, don't, I, mean, I don't want someone out there who has a billing company to be like, hey, wait a second. I'm not saying against billing companies, but I am saying there is some truth that when you bring it in the house, that person's sole client is you and your company, and they're invested in your company. Absolutely. And that, again, that may be something that matters to you at this life stage mm-hmm. and in the life cycle that may not matter to someone else. Again, right. I think the beauty of being able to, to run your business in a way that honors where you are in that life cycle mm-hmm. and that you get to change your mind. I think that's also the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship is that you get to change your mind. If you're like, Hey, I'm bringing this in house. And you're like, no, I'm not. You, you get to change your mind and that's okay. You know, we contract, um, although I have a, a billing, you know, and credentialing agency, um, and a full billing team, we actually subcontract our, um, denied claims that have gone after a certain age. We still subcontract that out because the administrative load, the amount of time it takes my, my admin team to be on the phone, they would be better served doing something else. And so for reconciliation and age claims, we actually contract um, a third party of individuals who just do that, right? Um, Because oftentimes after a certain age, um, those become write-offs. And this this particular team specializes in recovery, right? Um, Where that makes sense, right? For that particular volume for my business, whereas you may have someone on your team that just manages recovery. Again, I think it's a function to volume, right? At, at our volume, we're a multi-seven-figure practice. We can afford to outsource this particular um, right. portion because it is in, an inefficient and a redundant task um, that doesn't make sense for us to be in-house, right? 
And so again, that's the freedom of entrepreneurship. It we our businesses don't look the same, and I think that is the beautiful piece um, about being able to do this work. Yeah. So I had one more question. Well, we have two more questions for you. Yeah. I'm good. Um, but one of them that you know comes up all the time is is about negotiating rates with insurance companies. And reimbursement rates are one of the reasons that people often cite for not taking insurance. Um, and there are, of course, consultants who talk with clinicians about how to go about requesting a rate increase. And there are plenty of clinicians who have said, I've done that. I've done the thing to um, request a rate increase and I wasn't successful. And I'm wondering, since I know that this is something you talk with people about, is there something that you see that differentiates the people who are successful in getting rate increases from those who are not having any luck in that department? Yeah. So a few things that the rate increase letter is not about you. Insurance companies actually do not care about who you are as an individual or your practice. What they care about is the data, right? And if you can talk from, speak their language, right? So oftentimes um, we used to get requests to review these rate increase requests and I would just mark it up. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. They don't care about those things. What are the evidence-based practices that correlate with shorter patient times and therapy? Because that translates to a dollar amount to an insurance company. And they're all about improving patient uh, symptoms, right? For the least amount of money. That's what they want to know. And so if you are providing something like all of my clinicians are trained in EMBR, Insurance companies love EMDR because it often correlates with a shorter treatment window, which costs them less money. Clients are less likely to result in higher level care. So that's what we talk about, right? We also talk about if you are providing a specialized service that, um, or you have specialized training that's hard to find, that can be a, a point of negotiation, right? Um, again, using the data. So insurance companies like to say, we have enough clinicians in your area. Well, I like to pull data that says the average wait time for an appointment is, which you can find if you know where to look, right? And so this is what I teach clinicians to do is to write data-driven rate increases. The other really important thing, one, not about you, two, data-driven. Number three, accepting no is not an option. And so they will tell you no the first time, ask again and ask often. So we ask for rate increases every single year without fail. We don't always get it, but we always ask again. And so on average, we receive a rate increase between 5 and 11% um, on a biannual basis because we ask every single year. So I'm likely not going to get one from Care First in January because they just did a region-wide increase. Do you think I'm going to ask? Yes, I am, right? And they're going to say no. I'm immediately going to ask, when is the next review period? I know, because I've read my contract, that I can technically request a review for a rate increase every two years. I happen to do it every year out of practice and we always ask every two years, right? And so for every insurance company, I think that piece is important. And then at some point you have to decide, is this relationship based on the administrative load and the reimbursement rate sustainable? And if it isn't, what percentage of your client population does that correlate to? So when we went out of network with Humana, it was roughly 14% of our clients. And so 14% of our clients would be affected. What did we do? Secure single case agreements for our full fee. And we submit those claims out of network for our clients, but they pay us up front. So if you are not going to accept insurance, you have an option or a strategy to still make care accessible as an out-of-network provider. Again, this is a way we can advocate. And so these are things that I talk about all the time. So ask, right? I likely have a video I can say, hey, go listen to this and answer your question. Um, but those are things that I would I would say. Um, I do have a longer training video that's free on the website, on the blog, as well as our template that to date, over a thousand clinicians have utilized to successfully negotiate rate increases. And so data work. They do not care about who you are as an individual. And I, I'm sorry, I care about you. <laughs> no, that's... It, it is right spot on the money. No, absolutely. I, 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 I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation with practitioners about insurance or about other related um, entities that, you know, practitioners deal with where I'm like, you're misunderstanding. You're trying to apply your logic and how you approach things to something else that is not, has nothing to do with that. You know, this yeah. is about the bottom line. This is about yeah. making money, you know, keep, you know, keeping your money. Because <laughs> we, I mean, we are just not data-driven people as, right. as like 
in our nature, right? It is about the relationship. And so we want to use that heart-centered approach. And, you know, I always just keep my audience in mind, right? And I save all that warm fuzzy for the people who are going to benefit and appreciate it and speak the language of data to the insurance company so that I can keep my warm fuzzies (laughs) where they need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just, you know, switching that, you know, that kind of mindset. And so again, we have a template to help do that because I know that that doesn't come as naturally for for some of us. Yeah. So if there's anyone listening today who's like, oh, I need some of that. I need some help with billing. I need some help with my questions related to insurance um, or any of the other services that you offer. How can people get in contact with you? So I am Dr. Ajeta Robinson on all platforms. Also, ajetarobinson.com is my website um, where you can find, if you go to companies, you can find about my therapy services. You can find the credentialing company, a credentialing billing agency, and then business consulting. Everything is housed there. Um, Mastering insurance for mental health professionals. So masteringinsurance.com is specifically where we house um, the billing and credentialing training and support and the done for you services. And so I'm pretty easy to find. If you just Google my name, you'll find way more than you probably want to know about. (laughs) I I can attest to that. Well, I remember the other day I did just a search, just, you know, could just prepare for an interview and right up the, you're the first thing that pops up. And I was like, good for her. I was like, excellent. Right on. SEO down pat. No, absolutely. I have way too unique of a name for there to be any confusion. So I can't act up in Facebook comments or because it's just me. So very easy to find. So yeah, please feel free. I welcome your questions and any way that we can be support. Let us know. Well, that about wraps it up for us. We really appreciate you being here. And, uh, you know, I, I always say we are appreciative of our guests being here. And I am. But I will tell you that this conversation, because it touches on so much stuff for me personally that I, I work with and I talk to my clients about, I'm just like warm fuzzies. I'm just like, this is, this is, this is such a good conversation. And I'm so <laughs> pleased to have had you here. And I thank you for sharing your wisdom and insights um, with our audience. For everyone else, you know, as you heard, you can get in touch with Dr. Robinson. Um, at the points where she she told you, you can also get in touch with us if you have a question for her. As always, you can go to our Facebook page. You can go to our website. We do ask that you please, if you have a comment, if you have a question, feedback, we always want to hear it all. Thank you again for listening. We'll talk to you guys soon. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.